So I took the instrument in and I took it apart and I realized that I had made the biggest mistake of my career. You just heard from Jerry of Omo Podcast. You're going to have to keep on listening to know what the biggest mistake of his career was. But first, hello and welcome to Violin Class, the podcast for anyone who is learning the violin as an adult. I'm Julia, your teacher, and I'm here to share my tips and tricks to make learning the violin a little bit easier. Okay, so I say this a lot, but this is truly one of my favorite episodes of Violin Class so far. You guys are in for a real treat. Rosie and Jerry are luthiers, which is a fancy term for someone who makes or repairs wooden instruments like violins, guitars, cellos, etc. We talk about some of Jerry's craziest repairs, his cello from hell, and which bug creates the most damage on wooden instruments. We'll also be covering how a luthier makes their living, what goes into running a violin shop, where they source all of their instruments, truly fascinating stuff. Even professional violinists know very little about what goes into building, maintaining, and selling instruments. So no matter what level you're at, you'll definitely learn a thing or two in this episode. A few notes before we dive in. This episode contains violin class's very first swear word. It starts with an A and it refers to a body part. So if you're listening with small children, consider this your heads up to put in some headphones. If you would like to read more behind the scenes and get access to the photos and links mentioned in this episode, make sure that you're signed up to the violin class newsletter at violinclass.co slash newsletter link in the show notes. And lastly, if you enjoy this show, please leave a rating and a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps me to reach new listeners and grow this podcast. Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. All right. Thank you so much, Rosie and Jerry, for joining me. So I'm going to let you guys introduce yourselves and your podcast. So Rosie, why don't you start? What do you do? And tell me about Omo. I would be happy. Julia, thank you so much for having us on the show. I do first want to say that You have such good content and I wish everybody who came to my shop had the education that you are doling out. I loved hearing about the the things you had to say about your journey, buying a first violin, having a relationship with the luthier, really enjoyed your talk with Ian Christensen. Good, good stuff. Yeah. But you want to know about me. So, uh, (laughs) well, my name is Rosie Deloach and I've been for the most part heading up Omo for the last four years and have a wonderful team around me that sheds light on the romance and the reality of violin making. And our world is actually bigger than that. There's violin making, but there's also people who do restorations. There's people who run shops. There's people who are identification experts that can look at a violin 250 years old and know who the maker is. So I feel like Omo is my own education uh, in progress because I learn something new every time. What else did you want to know? I've already forgotten. <laughs> what do you do? So you have your violin yeah. shop and then tell me about... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I live in North Dallas over in Texas and I've got a shop called Caraway Strings. Caraway is my maiden name. And in 2023, it'll be 20 years that I've been doing this. And I got started in this gig, honestly, back in the day, you could buy a violin outfit from China for $60. Mm-hmm. 
and make sure it's set up properly and rent that sucker out. And I was excited from a business proposition of making this work. That's not the same story anymore at all. But I was excited about building up a business and having a relationship with teachers. And then along the way, really fell in love with making sure things are set up right. And then from there, really fell in love with restoration. And from there, fell in love with having a nicer shop that could handle some restoration stuff. And the rabbit hole just goes deeper and deeper the more I learn. Awesome. Thank you. And Jerry, what about you? Because you do some slightly different things. And some of the things we're going to be talking about is how diverse this, I would say, general Lutheran world is. But yeah, Jerry, please introduce yourself as well. So my name is is Jerry Lynn. I'm an instrument restorer from Williamsport, Pennsylvania. I started working in the trade when I was roughly 15 years old. I worked in a, a shop very similar to what Rosie's describing. Um it wasn't something I necessarily sat out doing as, as a career path. I actually, I have a degree in, in violent performance and kind of while the rest of my friends in, in, in high school and in college were working other jobs or, or playing festivals, I was working in a violin shop. I was cutting bridges. I was fitting pegs. And it wasn't really necessarily something that I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do, but I kind of fell into it by accident and through a, a series of strange events, what we'll call them. Um, I ended up moving back home and working at the same shop after I was done with that, with that degree. So I could help out with, with taking care of my father. And at some point I realized that I'm an okay violinist, but I'm really good at this. And I sought out more teachers and, other avenues of studying. And eventually I got to the point where it's like, wow, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I started gaining kind of a, a, a national and, and somewhat international reputation. And a few mm-hmm. years ago for personal reasons, I needed to start my own business. And now I specialize in, in things that Usually other people won't touch my, my normal client is, is a working professional that has had an instrument that they've been playing on for years. And it's either had a catastrophic incident or it's, how do I describe this? If you've been playing on the same instrument for years and you just keep kicking problems down the curb, you eventually end up with major problems. So a, a good deal of, of my customer base are people that have major problems where the instrument just won't function anymore. And so I get referred to by word of mouth of, Hey, can you, can you fix my problem? And that's what I do. I work 20 feet behind my house and, uh, <laughs> on sometimes some very, very challenging things. Oh, that's so cool. I'm very excited to dive into that as well. So first question for you guys, we'll start with the really basics. What is a luthier? What does your job description entail? I know that's very different for different people. And the mm-hmm. second part, how how does one get into this? Do people more likely have a woodworking background and they get into the instrument things? Or do you find most people are violinists at like an amateur or a professional level? And then they're just like, I want to make stuff with my hands. Thoughts? Yeah. 
I'm going to defer to Jerry for the technical term because he's always spot on when it comes to recall like this. Perfect. Yeah. What is a luthier, Jerry? Oh, so a luthier, I, I think if you look it up, is somebody who uh, makes or fixes stringed instruments. That's that's the 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 overall umbrella definition. Wherever you fall in on that 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 umbrella uh, depends on the part of the market that you're serving. So, sure. I think most people get into it these days by by going to some sort of school for it. In fact, most job descriptions that you read for violin shops say must be graduate of accredited violin making program, mm-hmm. which which is kind of shooting themselves in the foot. But that's a whole other. It's a whole yeah. topic of conversation. Yeah. Jerry and I are oddballs because we did not go to mm-hmm. school mm-hmm. and uh, we picked up what we learned on the job. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, there was in my past, a lot of hesitation to call myself a luthier. Uh, I'm, I'm just a shop owner. I just rent instruments to kids. And uh, it, it took a while for me to uh, take on that word and i and i take it on with the uh what's the word a a lot of humility uh, and and try to be responsible with that word because there's a big difference between what i do day to day at my workbench versus what jerry does at his workbench and well so, it's 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 no less <laughs> valuable it really is yeah, i mean i'll, I'll agree service, with you <laughs> we're 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 servicing the needs of musicians. It's yeah. just, uh, I mean, I couldn't do what at this point in my life, I couldn't do what you do um, as far as dealing with the day-to-day traffic of running a violin shop. It would be exhausting. I would be yes. dead on my feet <laughs> and it's, it is, I mean, I, I am a lot of times, but it's mm-hmm. for a different reason. Like what you do is super, super valuable and is, is no less valuable than what I do a lot of what I do day to day is I'm I'm rehearing bows. That is uh, just a regular service that people need. Um, I'm resetting sound post. I am gluing up cracks. I am doing some minor touch up and uh, changing some bridges and a ton of strings, of course. But um, you know, there's like the life of of a mechanic. There are um, the day to day oil change type things, and then there's uh, the really specialty stuff that needs to be addressed. So between the two of us, I think we've got a lot of it covered. Yeah. That's I, a really good analogy, of, actually. Thank you. We, we've kind of also coined the term recently. It just kind of happened organically. Bench monkey. Bench monkey. You, you know, you would <laughs> sort of seems, monkey? <laughs> you know, well, bench monkey is, is slang for a, a, a luthier, you, okay. you know, um, I kind of came up with it. Uh, I, my former employer was, uh, God, how can I say this nicely or not nicely? Well, this is almost, you're going to get a dose of reality. My, my former, my former boss ended up becoming quite an asshole. Um, and, uh, one time this was after I'd been there for like 20 years, somebody came into the shop and said, Oh, I, I, I spoke with the other luthier and my boss says, Oh, he's not a luthier. And meanwhile, I'm handling all of the heavy lifting, all of the all of the crazy, crazy jobs I'm handling. And I said, well, if I'm not a luthier, what am I, a trained monkey? You, you know, <laughs> so kind of that's how the term bench monkey came to be. So 
uh, a lot of times we'll say, hey, bench monkeys, and that's kind of a slang for, uh, you know, luthier. And in some ways, it's an easier pill to swallow because luthier has this sort of snob appeal to it, which... Luthier. Right, I mean, I'm, you know, if you ever, if you've listened to Omo, I mean, I'm, I'm not a snob. Rosie's not a slob, snob. Brandon. I'm, I Chris, am a slob. <laughs> slob, so am I, but not, not a snob. Um, so Luthier kind of has, kind of has some connotations to it. Mm-hmm. And you'll get people that'll call themselves, oh, I'll, you know, I, I'm a violin maker. It's like, well, are you actively making instruments? No. Well, mm-hmm. what are you then? So it's a strange term. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Just coming back to what Rosie was saying, I think you would be the first point of reference for a lot of the people that I work with that are just getting into violin. On the violin teacher's side, I generally just refer whatever they tell you is good because luthiers know so much more about instruments than violinists, even though we're spending a lot of time on them. So just kind of a, a PSA to people that when you're starting out, go to a violin shop and <clears throat> talk to the people that work there because they can tell you exactly what you need to get started and set you up with a quality violin. And oftentimes, you know, I don't know how things are in your shop, Rosie, but renting from a specialized place like that is not more expensive than renting from like a a general guitar center type establishment. You just are going to learn a whole bunch more when you're, when you're there. Yeah. It's pretty equal to the uh, chain shops that we have in the Dallas area, as far as price point. Uh, And the difference is Everyone in my shop is trained to work on instruments. So you can walk in with a downtown post and walk out with it fixed as opposed to taking it to a chain store and then they have to send that violin somewhere else before they can get the sound post set back up. Uh, but, but we enjoy that we can have a relationship with our people. And to that end, your episode on how to buy a violin, I wish... That was good. I wish every parent and child could listen to that before they come to my showroom because the information is so powerful. And uh, I do a lot of handholding just to make them comfortable in the process of even looking for a violin. And uh, yeah, you, you did great stuff. With that. Thank you. I'm blushing. <laughs> so as far as the, the business side of things, Rosie, how do luthiers generally make a living? How do you connect the work that you do with clients that are coming in both? You know, we'll, we'll talk more on the, I think, the beginner amateur side, maybe. if that, mm-hmm. And then, Jerry, you can talk more about the specialty professional side, if that's okay with you guys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How do people, how do people live as, as luthiers generally? Yeah, there's lots of ways to skin a cat gut. And one of the things that works for me in my shop is having a solid rental program because you make sure that there's a a sizable amount of people that are renting your instruments. And over time, that equity builds. And then there's just a, a at least a certain amount of money that's coming in every month. And so we focus really hard on rentals for about four or five months. They come back to us in May. We're getting them cleaned up all summer, getting them ready for the fall, getting them rented back out. And then I have just entered the golden period. It's uh, early September where our shelves are empty as far as rentals. And we get to do this special shift where there's the, the fun projects that are 
a little bit more in line with what Jerry's working on, where we get to do some restoration, which is so fun. And uh, I credit having a, a shop that does rentals to giving us that time. And then, of course, we just keep the place stocked with all the supplies that people need and uh, make sure that the teachers and the the clients are are happy and keep coming back to us. And that <laughs> that helps over time as well. Um, making good buys in our showroom that sell, that's important. And uh, different clients need different things. Some people just need a solid Chinese instrument. Some people need something older and more refined. Uh, some people need American-made violins. And part of it is just knowing the clientele that I have and trying to serve the needs of the area. And uh, eventually over 20 years, um, it, <laughs> it, I did something right, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Going to the buying the reselling of the violin, because that's part of mm-hmm. what you guys do. How mm-hmm. do you source those violins? Do you just go out mm-hmm. and on a weekend and like, you know, do the equivalent of thrift shopping? So there's, there's two things going on because we have wholesalers. I have developed reputations with some uh, wholesalers that I trust that have something consistent. Um, if we are going to talk Chinese instruments, there is a phenomenon sometime where uh, you'll get a good product and then something will happen where something gets sold overseas or there's different workers and suddenly mm-hmm. you're getting a different product. <clears throat> and that's not good for my customers. I want to be able to say that this particular brand at this particular price point, it's always this. I sell lots mm-hmm. of them. So um from that perspective, uh, we, we want to have good relationships with our wholesalers. And then as far as um, taking on things for restoration, we have, uh, we have some close friends that that is just what they do is they just, they're collectors. And so they will work with us. Um, and then there's some uh, consignment that happens. Uh, I try to keep that to a minimum at my shop because at some point you're just uh, hanging up other people's stuff and you're paying rent to hang it up. (laughs) So um, I tend to use that in my showroom to kind of round out the selection I already have. Uh, And um, yeah, with between those three things, I I feel like I put something together that's decent with decent options. And so it's generally people that are coming to you now with instruments to sell and then you're reselling them. Generally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice place to be. <laughs> cool. And how many violins do you have in your shop for people to, you know, let's let's say like mid professional up, just mm-hmm. out of curiosity. Hmm. <laughs> Asking the big hmm. questions. How well do you know? God, what's the number? Because I I just rebuilt our rack so we could fit more. And what I do know is there's only five spots left for violins, so I have to be really selective when people want me to consign. There's probably like 50 to 60 instruments in there. Definitely yeah. enough to, yeah, to definitely enough to make a selection. Actually, overwhelmingly <laughs> a lot to yeah. make a selection. Yeah, you, you run into the dilemma of choice if there's too much. You yes. know, if you start showing people um, 10 things or 15 things in the same price range, it yeah. it does more harm than good. Yeah, under five is great. Totally because you can, you can really pick out the differences in the instruments. And then, you know, we do the standard mm-hmm. thing where we, if you, oh, you like this? We'll check it out for a week. Go play it for other people. See how you feel a week from now. 
Definitely. That's really good advice for anyone who's violin shopping or that will be violin shopping is try to keep it to a minimum. And the luthiers can help you. They know the instruments as you're just, you just heard they're the ones who have selected them if you have something in mind. And I think one big tip, if you're not really sure if it's kind of an overwhelming world to enter is just focus on what you don't like, like process of elimination, like nope, nope, nope. And then they can give you more that are similar to Mm -hmm. that, I think. Absolutely. When I have, I do have a lot of students who have rented for a while and they're ready to buy their first nice instrument. And part of my process is telling them, you are not going to hurt my feelings. If there's something you don't like, that helps me find what you do like. I, I want to match make you with your instrument. So, so give me all the feedback you got. Don't be afraid to make a bad noise. We're not here to judge your ability to play. You are in a process of discovery with your instrument. And to be real, it's it's a big purchase for people, no matter what save it's your first violin or if it's your seventh violin, it's always a big purchase. Um, It's like buying a car, but more like art. (laughs) There's a a lot more emotion involved in buying a violin than there is other things. It's it's an emotional process. You've got this thing that, you know, you're expected, I'm going to love this thing. And that, that can be, that can be challenging for the person selling the violin and for the person buying the violin. We'll be right back after this quick break. The Violin Class Podcast is brought to you by my very own private violin studio. If you want to bring your violin playing to the next level, if you find that you're stuck on a certain technique or a piece, you're having trouble making progress, I would love to help you work through whatever challenges that you're working right now on violin. So if you're looking for a violin teacher to help guide you in your progress, or if you're self-teaching and looking for a one-time lesson to check in and work together to make a plan for your violin playing going forward, I would love to work with you. I've been teaching violin online to adult amateurs of all levels for over a decade. So if you are interested, you can reach out to me at violinclasspod at gmail.com or through my website at violinclass.co slash contact. And yes, beginners are always welcome. On that note, let's get right back into the episode. Mm -hmm. For sure, unless you're like really into cars, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. That's not me. Uh, No. (laughs) Tools maybe, but not not cars. Yeah. I did have a woman that came in yesterday and she's potentially going to consign with us and pulled out her violin that she bought 30 years ago. And she said, I bought this instead of a car. Yeah. So she, (laughs) it was a personal decision for her. So about 10, 15 years ago at this point, I had this couple walk in and uh, he is really trying to get his wife to buy a violin. Like, oh, go, honey, honey, try it. Oh, try it. Try one that's more expensive. Try one that's more expensive. And it was, you know, she, obviously, she hadn't been playing for very long and she keeps trying more expensive violins. And it turns out that he had just bought himself a motorcycle and was trying to, huh? to justify it by getting her to buy a nice violin. But even better, every, every violin this woman picks up, she goes and she stands in front of the mirror with. I'm like, oh, okay. She's just checking out ever. And she kept doing this. And eventually her husband said, honey, what are you doing? And she says, I'm seeing how it matches my outfit. <laughs> Which is not how I recommend to pick up violin, but 
Hey, they, they both <laughs> left there very happy that day. She got a violin. He he felt better about his motorcycle purchase. All, all that matters, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Switching gears here, I want to talk to you, Jerry, about the restoration and the repair. So I'm really into like HGTV restoration of old home shows. And I feel like what you do is the violin equivalent of that. How much are you working with really old violins versus really new violins? And what is the difference between working on those? Well, I get a lot more angry when I work on new violins. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so, 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 you know, there's certain parts of the world that are, are known for producing what should be quality instruments. Um, no countries named. <laughs> a lot of times when you actually get them apart, you're like, wow, this thing's a piece of crap. And it ends up being a, Oh, Italy for, 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 I will take that pot shot. Uh, there's a lot of violin makers who moved to Italy so they can sell violins for more money and they're absolute bags of crap. Uh, not all of them. I, I don't want to go down that route and, and paint it with a, with a very wide brush and say that they're all junk, but there's, you know, those are the ones that make me angry. Something that somebody came to me and they said they spent, you know, twenty thirty thousand $30,000 on this instrument. And, I take it apart and like the joints aren't good. Like simple, simple joinery is just not good. Uh, so those, that's the big difference is the new ones make me angry that I tend to work on. Old, old violins. The, the thing that, that ruins my day is worm damage, which I tend to have a reputation of fixing a lot of worm damage and worms are the larval stage of a wood boring insect that, uh, will will make a home inside your violin if it's left unattended for months or years at a time. And so they they bore into the wood and they form if you do look if you it as a cross section, it almost looks like the the ant farms that people had when they're kids, where there's different different layers of of tunnels where they live mm -hmm. and they can completely destroy a violin. Mm-hmm. And that's it's absolutely terrifying when you start cutting into one and the galleries just keep going and going and going. Mm -hmm. So that's the big difference. The new ones make me angry. The old ones just give me stress. That's crazy. I've never heard of that, actually. And it sounds like that's it's like a thing. Uh, on my on my Instagram, there are photos of, of worm damage and you can you can go through and look at it and uh, see some of the things I've done to to deal with it. I will absolutely be linking that in this week's newsletter. How about like other bugs on that? Because when I was a college student living in my city mm -hmm. apartment, we had a bed bug scare, luckily did mm -hmm. not have bed bugs. But the first thing that, you know, my husband's a classical guitarist too, and we had all these instruments. We're like, yeah. what do you do when you have bed bugs and you have a violin? Yeah. So I get, I've actually had a few phone calls about this. Um, they don't tend to do anything with the instrument itself. It's not a good environment for bed bugs to live in. But the case, however, is so normally when you need to treat the area with, um, with bed bugs, uh, if you remove the instrument and bow from the case, and let's say you're going to use high heat, which is one of the, the things that exterminators will use, 
Um, just make sure that the instrument and bow are gone from that environment and it should be okay. The other thing that you can use to treat cases with uh, for insect infestations, such as bed bugs or dermestids, otherwise known as bow bugs, bow uh, bugs. There's, there's a chemical called permethrin, which you get it in. Well, it, it's a long term insect repellent that people spray on tents and clothes. And uh, if you have an infestation in a case, you obviously remove the instrument and bow and you uh, you can treat the case, make sure it is absolutely 100 uh, percent dry before you put the instrument and bow back in. But that will solve most, if not all, insect problems you could ever have with a case. OK, that, that uh, answers a question I have had in the back of my mind for like 10 years. Yeah. So. Thank you. The, the <laughs> hard thing while we're on the subject of weird and nasty things that can cause yeah. problems with your instrument, mold. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had people come to me with problems of, hey, the house I was renting turns out to have a mold infestation and I'm severely allergic to it. What do I do? And there's not a whole lot you can do on the inside. Um we've settled on on just exposing the instrument to some sunlight and and hoping for the best but probably the thing that i've seen that is most successful is is disassembling the instrument and treating with various mold killers or uv uh it's that can be a real that's a bigger concern in my mind than than bow bugs or bed bugs it's mold yeah We've had mold on one of our instruments, actually, and so I think I'll have to share that story real quick. Um, it was on one of my husband's guitars, and we were young and dumb and, and broke in, in college again. And, you know, in Canada, it gets really dry, and you need to humidify your, your instrument. And we'd seen this home ready. You put a little sponge in a little bag and just mm-hmm. put it in the case. And I don't know if he had it mm-hmm. in the case or he had it in the instrument. Um, and it was something I was recommending at the time, too. It was like, it's great. It keeps it humidified. And a few months of that, and we looked looked in there was a little bit of mold and um luckily uh, he has a great relationship with his luthier who made the the guitar and it was all fixed up before it was an issue but it, it does happen <laughs> even mm-hmm. to, yeah. yeah yeah i wonder if anyone has figured out how to make a uv light to um insert into the f holes yeah that would be pretty easy to adapt with the stuff that they've got for woodwinds yeah um, I, I saw some of the technology in use in the local school districts right after they they went back to um, in-person instruction after sure. after the lockdowns there's a lot of stuff going on with uvc which is not something you want to play with yourself without proper eye protection but it, it can be done mm-hmm. uh Fortunately, the the instances where I've been called to deal with mold, it's it's been okay just to walk away from the instrument for a little while. It <laughs> seemed like the safest thing to do at the mm-hmm. time. How much does you know price wise? How much does an instrument need to be worth for it to be worth saving from like bugs or mold or that kind of thing? That's a really difficult question. Uh, I think part of the answer is how much someone's willing to pay for it. Yeah, that's that's probably the big. <laughs> yeah, part of the problem is when you appraise violins. There's there's different levels of value, and when somebody brings an instrument to me for for an appraisal, um, 
I've learned I need to be kind of have a poker face because of just things that I get excited about that aren't worth a darn thing. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I always say there's very different types of values with instruments. There's, there's a wholesale value. There's a retail value. There is uh, an insurance value and there's also sentimental value. And those things aren't necessarily linked. And uh, I've, I've gone and done some pretty drastic things for instruments that it's not financially viable to do it, but the person absolutely positively loved that, that instrument for some reason. Mm -hmm. So usually what I, I tell people to do is uh, if they're playing, I know this is a podcast for beginners, but if they're playing professionally to seek out specific musical instrument insurance, because then it is, it's not an issue, whatever happens, mm -hmm. either you're, you're, if it's totaled, you're going to get a new instrument or if it's uh, whatever damage you can imagine, they're going to take care of the, the cost to fix it. And Jerry, don't you do a lot of insurance claims? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's for a, well, gosh, for the, not so much this year, but for the past two and three years, that's been the cornerstone of my business has been insurance jobs mm -hmm. where somebody's had an accident and I'm, I'm putting it back together. But the problem is old instruments are like old houses. You start taking apart old houses and you find that something's wrong with it. Uh, old, old instruments, old violins, old violas, old cellos are very similar. You start taking them apart and you find where things have been going wrong for a long time. Mm. What is the craziest repair that you've done? Like what has been the most on the brink of unplayable forever that you've brought back oh jerry are you going to talk about the cello from hell i think we have to talk about the cello from hell <laughs> oh that so that well there's 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 jobs that you do that it, there's just so much so much wrong with it not so much specific things but there's just so much and you you asked earlier about about how people make money and I am very much trading my time for dollars and I've been my, my, my own person now for a little over five years. And one of the first jobs that came into my shop was a, a, a pro cellist from, I'll say the deep South. Now remember I'm, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania. So this guy had driven quite a distance to come bring me this instrument it had belonged to his father, who was also a professional cellist. And uh, the instrument came to me because it had a a buzz that no one else could 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 find. And I'm getting inside with an endoscope, which is a, a flexible camera on the inside. And I see that there's just slabs of wood stacked upon slabs of wood for repairs. There is uh plastic wood filled in everywhere. There are patches that are failing Jeez. and there are, are sizable rib cracks everywhere. And I, I said, all of this needs to come out. And we started talking about the different sorts of, of, of jobs that we could do on this instrument. And we kind of settled on, uh, doing structural stuff, but with no cosmetics. And and now if somebody came to me with that, I would never even suggest that. So 
I took the instrument in and I took it apart and I realized that I had made the biggest mistake of my career because <laughs> the, I, I quoted the job out at, at five grand. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about some real numbers here, which I don't want to frighten any of any of your, your, your listeners. Um, so the, I had talked about rebuilding an under edge, which is the part where the instrument joins the top, uh, shoring up a bunch of, of rib cracks, replacing the sound post patch, putting in a couple of pedestal patches. Um, and the number I threw out was the ridiculous low number of $5,000 because I figured, Oh, I could do this in so many hours. And then, you know, five years and $20,000 later of my time, <laughs> it left. And so, when I part of when somebody calls me, there's this. Well, who sent you? Who? What? What? What's wrong with the instrument? And I also try to judge the the person not for like not for the like level of player that they are or or anything other than are you going to be okay dealing? Am I going to be okay dealing with this person for two, three, four, five, six months a year? Um, because that, that's a relationship and you don't want to get into that sort of relationship with, with just anybody. And I've, I've anymore, there's a lot of times where I just say, you know, I don't think I'm the the guy for you. A lot of that is to protect myself Mm. because I know that I need to make a a living based on my time. Mm -hmm. And I've had people, uh, I mentioned worm damage soon after I did a, a worm damage job, you know, people talk and I got this phone call from a guy somewhere in the upper Midwest who had an English cello that the entire thing was, was just worm track everywhere. It was literally a skin of varnish and everything else you could just see in the photographs was just powdery junk underneath it. Oh. And, and, uh, you know, I write back like, Hey, I, I, I can't do this job. Not because I'm not capable of doing it just because I would lose so much other business, so much other of my time. I would lose sanity. I'd also don't have the room for it because when you take a part of cello, it's like having multiple people share a small room. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, the guy keeps writing me back, like, would you do it for $50,000? And it's like, no, (laughs) like, no, I wouldn't. I just, and it was kind of, it was kind of funny. It's like, wow, I just, you know, this guy is just willing to pay anything. It's like, no, I I can't do it. Yeah. And so uh, I I make, I make money based on trading my time, like a, a lawyer would or an architect. And it's been a struggle to, to come to grips with that because if you come from a retail shop, um, there's a lot of times when you work in a retail shop that the prices on repairs are subsidized based on sales, sales and rentals, subsidized repairs. Mm -hmm. And when I had to learn very early on in the course of my own, owning my own business that, I can't do that. Yeah. And so it it really, it makes the scope of who I'm working for much smaller. Jerry, after five years, did you conquer that buzz? 
Yeah, it's gone. <laughs> so is the cello. <laughs> yeah. Dro- drove drove back home, and I had a I had a full cast of the top, which a, a cast for your listeners. Um, a lot of times, one of the things we do is we make support casts out of, of various materials. One of them is 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 plaster, and uh, I make full casts of of violin tops and backs all the time. I don't do it often for cellos just because they weigh a lot like this, this, the full cast of a, of a cello top is like 60, 70 pounds. And mm-hmm. like I had, nobody ever wants them. Like you offer them up to the musician when they pick it up. It's like, Hey, you want to take the cast with you? And they, they go, no. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what am I going to do with these things? So, I mean, I've used them as tombstones in my yard for Halloween. Um, <laughs> and like the guy was like, what are you going to do with this cello cast? I'm like, I think I'm going to bust it up and use it to fill a, a, a divot in my backyard before I cover it with dirt. <laughs> and he's like, can I take it? And I'm like, you want it? He goes, yeah. <laughs> and so I think somewhere in Arkansas, it's being used as a birdbath. <laughs> a noble cause, really. <laughs> I'll have to put a picture of that on the newsletter, too, because I'm curious <laughs> to see what that looks like. Okay. That's, it's it's. Uh, so a lot of my Instagram is, I view what I do with social media as I, I just don't want to put up pictures that say, hey, look at me, because there's a lot of that in, in, in Luthiers, like, hey, look at this, look at this. If I'm going to put something up on on Instagram, I'm going to show show a process, because I remember what it was like to be 20 and to really want to know more. Mm-hmm. And to not have the the information out there, and so I tend to show a lot of process on on Instagram. So you you might have to dig for it to, to find it, but you'll see uh, there there are posts there of how to make a plastic cast of a cello top. It's true. Jerry puts a lot of energy into teaching rather than showing, uh, and even if that's uh, in my DMs saying, "Hey, man, that's not that's not so great. Maybe try again." <laughs> But then willing yeah. to put in yeah. the effort to yeah. help me do it right. And that's so, one of the things because I he lo- cares. I, I love about, I love I love about Rosie is like Rosie just does not give up. She just keeps going. And thank you. And that was uh well, the story of, of how Jerry met Rosie and then Rosie met Chris and how almost started. Mm-hmm. Uh I get an email from her saying that she wants to come to the the Violent Society of America's Oberlin Restoration Workshop. And most of the people that that end up showing up there are, you know, there are people who have been around for a little while. And she writes this lovely email saying how she has this violin shop and it it just kept growing to the point where she needs she needed help. And it was so, so wonderfully written and so like, all right, in the, in the back of my head, I've got. Uh, you know, Albus Dumbledore from Harry Potter saying, you know, at Hogwarts, anybody who asks for help will get it. And I'm like, all right, then she's coming. <laughs> and that, so was, ne- that was huge. That was transformative. Yeah. And, and likewise, and when you make an investment in people, they make an investment in, in, in you. And so here's this Rosie as this kind of quasi outsider who's then coming into this a, a, a more polished version of of the trade that she's already practicing in, and she's giving back a hundredfold with this with this podcast. So, 
if you're not listening to Omo, please do because it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah, Rosie's yeah. baby. <laughs> Amazing! It's such a good podcast, and um, it's hilarious. Also, I mean, if you can, if you've been listening to this entire episode, uh, you get a sense of you know it's 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 reality of this like very niche industry that I think a lot of us, even in the violin world, don't know anything about. So, um, Speaking as a violinist, violinists have no idea. Nothing. They <laughs> really don't. We don't. They really don't. And, and it's kind of, it's kind of frightening sometimes. Like people will come in and they will say the most crazy thing. It's like, how have you made it this far? And you're a really good violinist. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's no education. You know, we don't take any yeah. class on the history of our instruments, on the mechanics no. of our instruments. No. That does not exist. Um, and so, no. honestly, no, Rosie, and- your podcast, I think, is like one of the only things that it would be. And, and I know it's more for luthiers, but I think a lot of people that aren't luthiers could, um, I mean, I could understand like mostly everything. So I think oh, it's, good. it's very ac- accessible for people that are curious. And um, there's not really any other resources that I've found. Mm-hmm. And on that note, thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you so much to Rosie and Jerry of Omo Podcast for sharing their time, their stories, and their expertise with us. I will link Rosie and Jerry's Instagram and websites in case you'd like to check out what they do in the show notes. This week's newsletter will also include some of the worm-damaged photos that Jerry was talking about, as well as some of my favorite Omo episodes. And of course, do make sure to check out the podcast if you enjoyed our conversation today. It's really, really well done, really well put together, and very informative. If you liked this episode, please leave a rating and a review to help others find the show. And I will catch you guys back in two weeks with, again, another interview episode this time branching out from classical and all about jazz violin. So make sure you're subscribed if you want to be notified for when that comes out. Thanks so much for listening and I will catch you guys at the next one.